Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you so much for being the inspiration for our prayers and for our music, for all things that please our soul and give us such pleasure down in the deepest part of our bones. You are the the one that causes all of this to be stirred inside of us. And so we pray, God, that as we come to you in worship, that our minds and hearts would be open to your Holy Spirit to touch us, to guide us, to inspire us, and to give us illumination, not only into the words of Scripture, but into the life of Scripture. We thank you, God, and we pray all of these things in your name. Amen. I remember the first time I heard my babies cry, and that was uh, Sarah and Matthew, Sarah, Elizabeth, and Matthew Philip. But it was the most unreal, out of body, and yet as deep inside the body as it is possible to go experience that I indeed cannot sufficiently describe. Now, for many of you sitting in in this congregation, my sisters in Christ, many of you are able to conjure up this overwhelming instantaneous intimacy that is like no other. I remember one thing about it was that I could not catch my breath without sobbing, without a sob coming out when I would try to breathe. My emotions were totally out of control, and it had nothing to do with the drugs. I, I'm, I'm not kidding. As time went on, I relied on their cry and my intimate knowledge of each of them to communicate their needs to me. I heard myself say, along with all the other mothers ever, no, okay, I'm just going to lay here a minute. That sounds like just a rolling over, getting comfortable cry. Or, that's a hungry cry, and I cannot get this food to them fast enough. Or, that's a change my diaper cry, and I'm very uncomfortable. Or, that's a, I just need a good cry cry. Or, that's a, I'm hurt, and I need you cry, and which, by the way, at least took one or two years off my life every time it happened. To this day, when I hear my babies cry who are 33 and 35 years old, I feel a surge of adrenaline shoot through me that makes me want to run, not drive, but run to their side and hold them and protect them from whatever is causing their pain. It never goes away, this deep love that we have for our children. I think we can say for someone who loves, the cry of those they love has incredible power. But when it is God seeing and hearing and knowing that cry, not only is it a deep intimacy, but we know that dramatic and transformational action has already begun. That brings us to our text today, a text that is familiar with many people, It's so dense, there could be about a hundred sermons in this text, and I promise I'm only going to deliver one. Maybe borderline two. No, only one. I'm going to keep it. From Exodus 3, 1 through 14, 
What does this text teach us today? Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come. I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. So the bush gets his attention. That is the only part that the burning bush plays in this particular story, although we call it the story of the burning bush. It's only mentioned one other time in all of Scripture, in Acts, when they're actually retelling this story. So what does that tell us? Right off the bat, it tells us that God can use what is available to get our attention. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as a burning bush, just something that gives us pause, something that invites us to be curious, to stop and listen, and enter into an encounter that is real and full with God. But I have to warn you, it's also a cautionary story that if you stop and investigate when you notice that God is about, you might just get your marching orders. 
So we can choose to bypass it, ignore it, or run from it. Or we can be curious enough about it, like Moses, about what God is up to, to stop and investigate. God's choosing of Moses and the setting it takes casts a very long foreshadowing, uh, foreshadow through the scriptures. We can see it all the way through. Moses, a most unlikely candidate for God's special appointment, is a murderer living as a fugitive his, whose work is to tend sheep. In other words, he's hiding out. He's in the middle of what has become his very ordinary life, serving his father-in-law, tending to his flock on the mountain. And in this story, we hear the echo of other unlikely appointees come to mind. Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob, David, a young girl named Mary, Peter and Paul, a centurion, a dying young girl, a, ble a bleeding woman, a man full of demons, you and me. God chooses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, but it's not the doing that God is after, it's the trust. So what would happen if instead of being afraid of what God is calling us to do, instead of hiding out, we were to stop and listen investigate the way that God is calling us. Entrusting God with our uncertain futures, we have to do certain things. And Moses teaches us what we have to do. We have to walk by faith. We have to obey God's call and in our time to be the body of Christ in the world. We'll have to obey God's call to seek justice. That, after all, is one of the number one themes in all of Scripture, Old and New Testament. To seek justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God. And we'll be responsible for our brothers and sisters. And we'll be responsible for our neighbor, even when our neighbor is our enemy. And we must also recognize Christ in the face of the prisoner, the naked, the blind, the hungry, and the sick. God called out to Moses from within a burning bush. It got his attention and he listened. And I wonder what is getting your attention today? What calls to you? Is the attention that you're giving over, is it to the fearful world that we live in, the drama and circus of politics all around the world? Is your attention being got by your own fears for your own security and future? What is it that is getting your attention? What's grabbing you and invading your thoughts and disturbing your dreams? Perhaps instead of worry, it's time to investigate God's voice in the midst of your anxiety or your curiosity. Now that God has your attention, what might be next? What opportunities to serve God sit in front of you but will require a step or maybe even a grand leap of faith? What might happen if you trust God with moving forward? 
Moses argued with God, not just once, but over eight times, about why God was making a mistake. He argued with God about God's choice, and he erected all these barriers to why it was impossible to validate the call. And he did it as fast as God could give him the call. But here's the interesting thing about God in this circumstance. I think the the thing that we forget about God, that it was with painstaking patience that God responded to each and every one of these barriers that Moses erected. He didn't say, Moses, you're ridiculous. I'm God. I can do anything I want. Go do it. No, he answered, responded, and provided Moses with every tool and resource that he needed, along with somebody who would even speak for him because he didn't feel confident speaking. With painstaking patience, God responded to each and every one of these barriers in such a way that Moses could come along with God and the barriers began to melt in front of Moses' own eyes. God didn't push or coerce. God brought him along, invited him, assured him. God was prepared to work with Moses through his doubts and through his fears, his insecurities, his hostility, his stubborn heart. And then God ultimately left the decision up to him. Would God work with you in any other way? God can be with you in your own insecurities, in your own fears, in your own hostilities, and in your own stubborn heart. And ultimately, it'll be up to you whether you trust God enough to follow him. So God demonstrates once again in this particular text that he chooses to work with us rather than control us. That God seeks an obedience that emerges from our trust and love rather than obedience gained by fear, intimidation, and coercion. God wills that we be part of the transformation, even as we seek to do God's will in transforming the world. There's this beautiful, um, rich mutuality in trusting and obeying God and serving others, because in doing that, we ourselves will be transformed. Our potential will be realized. We will find our fullest selves. Because this is an abundant God. I remember my grandfather, whenever he would walk in the room, he had all these pockets on. He had a shirt with a lot of pockets. He had pants that had pockets, and he had a treat in every pocket, and it was up to us to go and find all those treats. God is an abundant God with many pockets, and I guarantee you, Every single one of them has a treat in it. So Moses continues the conversation with the question, who are you? Now notice, this is a different question. Moses asked at the very beginning, you remember in the text, who am I? Who am I that I should go? And now the question shifts, not to who am I, but who are you? Who shall I say sent me? It feels to me like Moses' heart is softening. 
He's looking at, well, so what is this going to look like if I do this for you? It's not a question of suspicion or hostility. It's a question that opens the future. He says, well, if I come to the Israelites, if I should do that, who shall I say sent me? It's very different from the beginning when he said, no, no, I'm not the one. And so what do we learn from this? We learn here that questioning God may lead to God revealing God's self in a bigger way. That questioning God is actually not a bad thing. Perhaps a good thing. Because God is ready and capable and able to answer and respond. What God reveals is related to what Moses believes he needs to know in order to do what he's been called to do. So God's revelation is directly tied to the human situation. So as you ask that question, God, who, who, who shall I say sent me? God's response will be directly tied to your need to know in order to do what you need to do. What is it that you need to know about what God calls you to do? Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask for answers or clarity or resources and tools that are needed to do the work God has called you to do. Every time you hear yourself say, that's impossible, then I want you to remember this story. And the story of all the other unlikely candidates who said, that's impossible, and God said, well, let's talk about that. Let's reason together why it's possible. I am who I am. This self-identification of God in verse 14, I'm going to be honest with you, is one of the most puzzling and puzzled over verses in the entire Hebrew Bible. There is more written about this, more looked at by scholars than any other, any other section of the Bible. The most common translation is, I am who I am. But the most common is not always the most on mark. Other translations include, I will be what or who I will be. I will cause to be what I will cause to be. I will be who I am. I am who I will be. And this last translation seems to, for most scholars, to be the best option. I will be who I am. I am who I will be. There's more in that than just the certainty of God. In essence, it says, I will be God for you. The force is not simply that God is or that God is present, that, but that God will be faithfully God for them in all situations. It suggests a divine faithfulness. It's talking about the character of God to self. It says that wherever God is being God, God will be the kind of God you know God to be. Neither Israel nor you and I need to be concerned about God acting with arbitrariness or capriciousness. We don't need to worry that God has little value for a human life. 
We sometimes have such a primitive understanding of God and we fall back on that primitive understanding when we forget our own beliefs. What did I do wrong? Why are you punishing me? Why did they die and not them? Why won't you help me? Why won't you answer me? And we forget that God is, I am, who I will be for you in all situations with all the promises therewith. God can be counted on to be who God is. God will be faithful. So what does this story teach us about God and about ourselves? One of the first thing it teaches us is we cannot save ourselves. There's a 430-year silence between the time in the Bible that they put Joseph's body to rest and when God hears the cry of the people in Israel, 430 years in which their slavery has been, become a part of the fabric of that society. 430 years where they tried to save themselves. And finally, they cried out to God. We cannot save ourselves. God sees our daily struggles, God hears our cries, and God knows our pain. And when God knows, hears, and sees, that directly translates into action for God. God chooses that we work in divine partnership, in bringing liberation to the world. God counts on us as God chose to count on Moses with a free will for us to say no. And leave the rest of the world to their own devices. We are invited also to question and struggle and push back when we are called. But at the same time, we're called to keep an open mind and an open heart. We can count on God to be the God we know as revealed in Scripture and as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. In all things and in all time, we can trust God in the end of this story, I mean the real end, the end of the story for Moses, we go through so many things with Moses. And we understand that Moses didn't make it into the promised land. It's argued about why he didn't make it, but he sat on a hill on the mountain looking over the promised land, never to set foot in it. But he delivered a new generation of Hebrews a new generation of God's people into that promised land. And in the end, I, I, I'll be truthful with you. I have a hunch that it didn't really matter to Moses that he wasn't going to set foot in that valley. I think he had already come to understand that the land flowing with milk and honey, the land promised him, was not so much a piece of territory as it was an attitude of the heart. When your true home rests in the arms of God, have you not been given everything? So perhaps there is one more lesson that God, through Moses, can teach us. Back at the beginning of our story, when out of the burning bush, God had spoken and collared Moses for the very first time, Moses had asked for God's name. And God told him and gave him permission to use it to complete his call. Nobody had ever known God's name before Moses did. And we came to know it, Yahweh. 
I am who I am, because it has been passed on to us generation after generation after generation. In the end, as Moses sat there on Mount Pisgah, with that thought in his heart and that name he had been given on his lips and with the sunset in his whiskers, he became in the end a kind of burning bush himself. So perhaps we are called not, not just to be those who listen to the burning bush, but to be the burning bush itself, the one who calls, the one who gets the attention of the one passing by, the one who says, do I have a story for you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.